Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Sunday, May 14th, Mother's Day, at least in the United States, where I am. Happy Mother's Day, everybody, particularly all those mothers out there. Uh, it's also an important political day today. Uh, there's Turkish elections. We just did a show, actually, with my old friend from the Central University, Central European University, Mace uh, 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 Kizilowski, on the similarities between the elections in Turkey and um, in Poland, uh, and various other questions of authoritarianism around the world. And, of course, not far from Turkey, is Israel, and May 14th is also an enormously important day symbolically in Israel. It's Independence Day. Uh, on the 14th of May, 1948, Israel declared independence. Not everyone, of course, sees uh, it quite in the same terms for the Palestinians. Uh, the next day, tomorrow, Monday, uh, May 15th, is known as Nakba Day uh, in memory of catastrophe, of their own experience of refugee status. And as always in these situations, huge controversy about these dates. Um, the UN recognition of the Palestinian Nakba Day, I guess um, May 15th, has elicited sympathy and, of course, controversy. The Israelis aren't keen on it. Uh, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations has suggested avoiding Nakba Day. We're not talking about Nakba Day today. We're talking about Israeli Independence Day. And my guest has, um, I think, uh, quite a controversial take, an interesting take on the significance of the State of Israel, of Independence Day, and of the connections between uh, the modern state of Israel and the modern state of the United States. Uh, he has a new book out, And None Shall Make Them Afraid. Uh, Rick Richmond is joining us from Los Angeles, just down the coast. Rick, congratulations on the book. Uh, it came out last month. An interesting take, uh, a narrative on eight stories about the modern state of Israel, in which you are linking um, the Zionism, uh, the what you call the democratic Jewish state, and Americanism, uh, you suggest that they're intimately bound up with one another, and those are what your eight stories of the modern state of Israel uh, are made up of. Explain why the birth of Israel and of Zionism and of, Mer and of 20th century Americanism, why are they so intimately bound up with one another? Well, for several reasons, Andrew. Um, first, uh, because Americanism has been at the heart of the American experiment ever since the United States was established. Americanism being defined as the movement to merge freedom and democracy and to create it not only in the United States, but to bring it to, uh, to other people throughout the world, as opposed to the empires with which the 20th century began, and as opposed to communism, fascism, national socialism, and certainly anti-Semitism throughout the 20th century. And so Israel was uh, the movement to establish a free and democratic Jewish state in the place where it had stood for centuries, um, two millennia ago. And so when you look at the 
20th century, which was perhaps the most ideological century in human history with all those isms. And communism, fascism, national socialism, certainly anti-Semitism, murdered millions of people. But Americanism defined as the movement for freedom and democracy and Zionism as the movement to create a free and democratic Jewish state were the two most successful isms of that century. And today, May 14th, is is a day of multiple miracles. It's a miracle not only that the Jews were able to reestablish their state two millennia after they were expelled from Eretz Yisrael by the Romans, but also that they survived an attack by five separate Arab armies from five different countries, attacking them on the day they declared independence from three sides. And it's a miracle that they survived that war. They survived multiple wars thereafter. It's a miracle that they created um, a state that has part Athens, part Sparta. Mm. And well, we'll, we'll come on to that miracle, what you call at least a miracle, Rick, later. You, okay. you use these terms, Americanism and Zionism, but I wonder whether these are terms that people are in strong disagreement about. We did, a, as I said, we did earlier today, we did a show on the Turkish election, which I don't know whether you want to call it Turkishism, um, certainly post-Ottoman Turkey, uh, people... Two, two groups of people have profoundly different versions of that. The idea of Americanism isn't agreed by all Americans. In fact, America fought a civil war in the 19th century. Some people who have been on this show believe it's we're on the brink of another civil war between right and left in America. And of course, the same is true of Zionism. Uh, we've done a number of shows on the enormous structural, cultural, political, religious divisions amongst the Jews of Israel between progressives and the people associated with Benjamin Netanyahu. So I'm not convinced these terms work. How how would you respond to that? I mean, these are such broad terms. Well, I'd respond to it by saying that neither Americanism nor Zionism was an effort to create a single point of view and have everyone agree with it and nobody disagree. That's the essence of totalitarianism or imperialism, or the other isms uh, that Americanism and Zionism were intended to replace. It's When you look at what's happened in Israel in the last few months with the debate over judicial reform, and you look at the United States with the ongoing debates about history, about identity, um, about politics, about the direction that the country is headed, in both countries, you can hold that debate without fear You can speak in the public square. You can demonstrate. You can do all these things and have an impact, whereas under other systems, you can't. So, yes, it's a broad term. And no, it's not intended to mean that everybody must agree with my views about those terms or about where either country is headed. It essentially means that everybody is free to debate them without fear in a society where the majority will rule where minorities will be protected and able to raise their point of view. And that's the system that you're really trying to um, to effectuate. And- I think that, uh, Rick, and I don't want to make this obviously just another debate about Zionism and the state of Israel, but the people who uh, see May 15th as Nakba Day might 
disagree strongly. They would suggest that the, the voices of uh, the non-Jewish people of Israel are, are, are certainly not treated equally with, with the Jewish peoples. But let's leave that one. Let's focus on the book. Um, as you say, uh, it's a book about this odd symmetry, this uh, convergence, uh, this sort of the, the parallel worlds of Americanism and Zionism. And you focus on eight stories, eight characters um, from uh, the 20th century, including Theodore Herzl, uh, Golda Meir, uh, Louis Brandeis. How did you choose the characters in the book? Well, the book sort of evolved. It started off as individual portraits of some of the people who were important in the 125 years of Zionism since Herzl really brought it forth, whose either names or whose stories or things that they did were not widely known. Even starting with Herzl, many people think that the origin of the um, his pamphlet, his history-making pamphlet, The Jewish State, was the fact that he was a foreign correspondent in Paris at the time of the Dreyfus trial and heard the crowd shout, death to the Jews. That really is not um, the origin of, uh, of Herzl's beliefs. And the story is much more complicated, much more interesting, much more consequential. And I started there and then I went uh, to Brandeis, who people know as one of the great justices in the history of the United States Supreme Court, but they don't know the story of his involvement uh, with the American Zionist movement and transforming it from a movement that had 15,000 members before he came on the scene to something that quintupled when he added his name and his resources and his time and his reputation to the movement. And he played a key role in, in the Balfour Declaration. And then you move to Heim Weitzman, Heim Weitzman was the head of the Zionist organization in the 1920s. And very few people know that during World War I, after the Balfour Declaration, he traveled to the plains of Transjordan to meet with Amir Faisal, who was the commander in chief of the Arab forces who were fighting the Ottoman Empire for their own freedom. And the two of them held a meeting almost extending an hour long in Faisal's tent and came to an agreement about the respective futures, national futures of the Arabs and the Jews. And that was presented in complimentary presentations by Faisal and by Weizmann at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference. And that's a story that is a story both of the Jewish 20th century and the Arab 20th century, and people ought to know it because it's relevant to what's happening today. And then going to Vladimir Jabotinsky, who's probably the most little little understood, most misunderstood. And also uh, controversial. Uh, you know, many people see him as essentially just a Jewish terrorist. Yeah, and that's a, 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 a for people who read my book, I think they will come away with a completely different vision of Jabotinsky. He was a poet, a translator, a journalist, an author, a great one, one, perhaps the greatest orator, a Jewish orator of the 20th century. And um, he met with Churchill in 1937 at a key moment during the Peel Commission's discussions of what was going to happen with Palestine. And uh, what I try to do in the book, um, because as you say, many people hold the view that you just articulated, 
is to use primary sources. I'm not trying to get people to simply believe me because I say it. No, I, I take your point. Let, let me ask you this, Rick. It occurs to me, you know, you're obviously coming from a, a certain kind of political position. Is there such a thing as a bad Zionist? Do you know of any bad Zionists, of Zionists who you disapprove of, who you who you're shamed by? Yeah, certainly. Well, I don't know if I'd call them you know, Zionists, because... Uh, well, isn't that, that, that was the point of my question, is that for yeah, you, Zionism the, is by definition a good thing, so whoever's a Zionist is a good person. Yeah, it, it, it's, I mean, there can be bad Americans, you know, bad Israelis. For certain Who's bad, a bad American? Bad, who who bad, would be a bad American bad in your mind? Um, uh, I would say, uh, so, you know, uh, some of the people who come to mind who are either on the far right uh, or on the far left, people who take their views to extremes and don't allow for people to articulate or don't accept people of uh, views on the other side, those are people who are fundamentally against what the American and the Zionist experiment was about. And, and, and Andrew, people, people mistakenly think that Zionism was one thing or that Zionists were one thing. But there were labor and socialist Zionists under Ben-Gurion. There were general or organic Zionists under Weizmann. There were Herzlian or revisionist Zionists under Jabotinsky. So no, I, I take your point. And, and, and two of the characters in the book are Golda Meir, who represents, of course, the old left, the kibbutz left of Zionism. And Jabotinsky, whether or not he was a terrorist, certainly he was an inspiration for uh, many right-wing conservative Zionists since, including uh, Netanyahu. What ties these people together? What makes both Golda Meir and, and Ziv Jabotinsky, what makes them Zionists? How, what do they agree on? They, they agree on the fundamental need for the Jewish people to have a national existence in the land where historically they had that national existence and to be able to pursue their own goals uh, and beliefs, Jewish and or religious or secular, but whatever they believed uh, in a free society. And Jabotinsky, I mean, the characterization of, of him as a terrorist is, is, is really completely wrong uh, for the reasons that I think I'm confident, actually, anyone who reads that chapter in the book will understand why. But he himself at the time in the 1930s said, I, I would like to have a Jewish state if it's not the state that I want it to be, uh, if it's a socialist state. He, was, he, he thought Israel needed to be more than simply socialism. He needed, it needed to be more than simply one class. He said, if that's what it is, I will go into the loyal opposition because a Jewish state is something that's necessary for the Jews, not for just one particular type of Jew. So what ties them together is almost, uh, because they appear over 125 years from, from, from Herzl all the way up to the present, is this kind of invisible baton that's handed off between generation to generation to try and establish uh, a place where the Jews can live in a democratic and free society. And what the results of that democratic and free society will be, will be what the Jews make of it and not something that's imposed 
by a dictator or totalitarian. Yeah, I, I mean, Rick, just as we, we talked about the American Civil War and the issue of race and of slavery, which never seems to have gone away from America, of course, the thing that defines Israel as much as anything else is what the Palestinians call Nakba Day. Well, well, how does this fit in? I mean, are you just sort of conveniently avoiding the fact that with independence, um, you had a huge refugee problem that had dominated not just the second half of the 20th century, but the first quarter of the 21st century? Yeah. The uh, Can you put that, that slide up that you just put, put up? Um, it, this is a photo for people just listening of from Wikipedia, the, the most reliable resource, I guess, we have at the moment of Palestinian refugees in 1948. It's a photo from Fred Kasanik, uh, front cover of the birth of the Palestinian refugee problem. And it's written by Benny Morris, who's an Israeli, uh, right. uh, one of the one of the so-called new historians. And Benny Morris wrote a, a, a second book, a revision of the book that, 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 that you showed, in which he concluded that the refugee problem was one that would not have occurred had the Arabs not brought a war against Israel on the day it declared its independence. And that the Nakba, which is the Arabic word for catastrophe, was really an opportunity, not a catastrophe, because Israel was established by UN or pursuant to UN Resolution 181, which is which recommended not simply a Jewish state, but a Jewish and an Arab state. And if the Arabs had accepted that resolution instead of trying to destroy the state of Israel, then we would today be celebrating not just the 75th anniversary of Israel but the 74th anniversary of an Arabic state in Palestine. And there would be no refugees because there would have been no war. And all of the... Uh, so in other words, they, they got what they deserved, Rick, in your mind at least. No, they didn't get what they deserved. They got what uh, was a catastrophe that they initiated. A political military catastrophe. It was a military catastrophe and a political and a moral one because 90,000 Palestinians died in all the wars that followed 1948 and more have died in the last five days. I mean, Israel has just come out of a, another war from Gaza uh, where, where in two decades ago, Israel withdrew every settler, every soldier, every settlement. Um, and with, there have been seven wars since from forward positions in Gaza. And that's a tragedy for both peoples because 25 Well, it's certainly, it's, it, I, I'm not sure you can make the moral equivalence in terms of tragedy. It's a tragedy for the Palestinians. L let's, um, let's go back to the book because this is obviously enormously, as you know, enormously controversial. One of the things you do in the book is you tie a speech that Louis Brandeis made uh, in 1915 in Boston on what he called true Americanism with the speech that Benjamin Netanyahu made to Congress in uh, 2015, so uh, a century later, a speech which, again, is, is very controversial. I think, uh, Rick, as you know, not everyone will be happy with that. I'm sure Louis Brandeis is probably turning in his grave. I don't suppose he's particularly, he would be particularly keen on being associated with Benjamin Netanyahu, or perhaps you would disagree. 
Well, I, I, I don't know what he would think of Netanyahu, but I do believe, I think I know what he would think of the progressive movement because he was one of the great initial progressives of the time. And he believed that free speech was the salvation of a democratic society. And so this end, was what his 1915 speech was about. Now, are you 19- suggesting that Netanyahu's speech, which a lot of people were irritated by Netanyahu telling lecturing Congress on what democracy should or shouldn't be. Are you suggesting that they were articulated in the same spirit, Zionism and Americanism coming together? No, the reason I say that I don't know what Brandeis would think about Netanyahu's speech is that Netanyahu's speech was directed towards the threat from Iran and the imminent Iran deal, which never got a majority vote, much less the two-thirds vote necessary for a treaty from the Congress. And that has, um, well, I mean, we can debate the, the Iran deal, but at the time, everybody in Israel across the spec- political spectrum, left to right, thought the Iran deal was a disaster because it ratified an Iranian uh, uh, nuclear program and then had sunset provisions, which made the deal would la- meant the deal would last only for um, a, a, a few years, and then Iran would have an industrial-sized nuclear program. And I think the way to view um, the way to view Netanyahu's speech in 2015, whether you agree with the speech or not, whether you agree it was a good speech or a bad speech, whether you agree with it was a good tactic or a bad tactic, whether you whether you think it was an insult to to the president or or, or not, is to remember what uh, Ron Dermer, who was the Israeli ambassador at the time, said to the Czech ambassador, when the Czech ambassador said to him, what's going on with Netanyahu's speech? Why is he speaking in the Congress against the wishes of the American president? And Dermer said, I've got two questions for you. Number one, in 1938, if the Czech, if if your president had been invited to speak in parliament against the wishes of Neville Chamberlain to oppose the Munich agreement, would he have gone? That's the first question. Yeah, which is uh, it's sort of intellectually, I have to say, uh, Rick, intellectually vacuous. It's it's always the last resort of intellectual scoundrels to go back to 1938. Anytime they want to make an argument, it's like Hitler. There's no equivalence between Nazi Germany and Iran. Um, but but go on. Well, I just don't buy that. It's nonsense. Well, why 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 don't you buy it if Iran has announced its intention to destroy? the one and only Jewish state. Well, even if that's true, and even if they meant it, it still wouldn't make them equivalent to the Nazi state. But that's, and I think you're doing injustice to the memory of the the millions of Jews killed in Europe by by trivializing Nazism. Let's go back, though, to uh, Netanyahu's speech. I mean, Netanyahu, for all his claims to being uh, uh, an enemy of, authoritarianism and all the other things he talked about in that 2015 speech. There are many Israelis who who have come on this show and will come on this show suggesting that Netanyahu is himself an enemy of, of democracy. His latest initiative with judicial reform in, in Israel actually tr- seems to have triggered almost civil war in the country. How, how would you respond to that? I respond to it by saying that's that's exactly an example of the point I have been trying to make, uh, which is that Israel is a society where one point of view is not required, where you can feel free. 
But that's Netanyahu. But that's what Netanyahu wants to do away with in his ju judicial reform, isn't it? No, no. That 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 that's definitely a mischaracterization of what they were trying to do. Um, if you'll give me thirty seconds on this, uh, for twenty-five years, um, the issue of judicial reform has been discussed in Israel, and across the board, people believe that there should be a check and balance on the Supreme Court in the same way that the Supreme Court is a check and balance on the Knesset. And the debate was, did this proposal go too far, too fast, with the danger of doing more than simply create a check and balance on the Supreme Court? And because there was free discussion of this and free demonstrations, Netanyahu pulled the proposal from the table, and it's now being discussed by a committee of representatives on all sides of the political spectrum, which is exactly the way an issue like that should be handled. So this is an example of, of an Israeli democratic success where an issue is proposed, and even a majority cannot ram it through without people being able to speak, and you've seen the results. So you may oppose, I may oppose, the actual proposal but you shouldn't lose sight of the fact of what kind of political society Israel is, that people can come on your show and do this and express those views and express them in Israel. They don't have to leave the country to express them. Whereas in some countries, if you want to not wear something on your head uh, or to cover your hair, you'll lose your job. Your family will be uh, terrorized and perhaps you'll be killed yourself. That, that, right. So, so let's go back to the book, Rick. Um, one of the characters you involve, which uh, I wouldn't have expected to show up, is, is uh, Ben Heck, an American screenwriter. Tell me a little bit about how he fits into the book. Okay, Ben Heck was, was somebody who uh, became the most highly paid screenwriter in Hollywood history, he created the gangster, the, the genre of the gangster film. He was a journalist, he was an author. Uh, but he had no connection, uh, really, to either Judaism or the Jewish community or Jewish institutions or synagogues, uh, which, by the way, was true of Brandeis as well. Brandeis had no real connection with either Judaism or Jewish organizations before he, in effect, endorsed Zionism. And Ben Heck went through the same process. He met uh, one of the followers of Jabotinsky, um, who convinced him that uh, what was happening in Europe, uh, and this is in 1939, 1940, 1941, before the Holocaust began, required a response, not silence, from the Jewish community in America. And at the time, a lot of Jewish leaders of the organized Jewish community in America were counseling silence. Th their advice was, don't say anything about what's well, happening. Were they getting the right story, though, Brandeis and Heck, uh, the story, of course, was um, a land without people for a people without land. Were they hearing what was really the nature of things in the Palestine? We've done a number of shows on Palestine in the 20s and 30s of the complexity, the demographic, cultural, religious complexity of Palestine in the 20s and 30s. Or were they themselves subject to propaganda, perhaps even lies about the reality of the situation, the fact that there was another group of people there who weren't particularly happy that the Jews had shown up. You know, I, 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 I don't think anybody was really unaware. Herzl at the beginning 
uh, was definitely aware of the Arabs. And in one of his diary entries, he said he hoped that one of the things he would do is improve the situation of the Arabs themselves. And in Herzl's um, novel, Old Newland, Old Newland, um, he, the, the villain in that character is a narrow right-wing nationalist rabbi. And one of the admirable figures is an urbane, educated, articulate Arab. So that issue has been there from the beginning. But I wonder on your shows, uh, Andrew, if you have covered the fact that the Palestinians have been offered a state formally five times since 1937 and each time have rejected it. And that itself is a tragedy because it's not just 1948 when they rejected a state, but in 1937, they rejected the Peel Commission. In 1947, they rejected the UN Resolution 181. In 2000 at Camp David, they rejected the state offered by Ehud Barak, who was a prime minister from the left, not the right. They rejected a state in 2008 when the Annapolis process engineered by George W. Bush and Condoleezza Rice in which lasted a year with Condi Rice traveling each month to the Middle East, almost as the desk officer of the peace process and produced still another offer of a state. And that was rejected. So it's not as if there hasn't been an opportunity provided. Right, to- but, but, you know, maybe there's some truth to what you're saying, um, Rick, Rick. But then it, it, for people who don't share your position, it sounds like you're really saying, well, these people kept on getting offered deals. The deals got worse. They kept on rejecting them. So they basically deserve what they got or what no. they have now. Is that no. fair? No, that's not a Andrew. It's not a fair. It's not a fair characterization to say that um, if what I say is that they have received five offers of a state and not accepted any, it's not fair to say that what I'm doing is criticizing them in moral terms. What I'm really saying is that one of the tragedies of the situation is that Palestinian nationalism has been a movement that is not simply a movement to create a Palestinian state, but to destroy a Jewish state. And that's at the heart of the tragedy of the situation. So I would characterize it not the way you have characterized it, which is pejorative, but to say that um, the, the, the real solution is not one plan or another. There have been literally 32 different peace plans. The absence of peace is not because of the absence of peace plans. It is, in my opinion, because um, in order to have peace, in order to have a two-state solution, you have to have an acceptance on both sides of the validity of the other side's state. And the slogan of the peace process, which was two states for two peoples, which was accepted by the United States and by Israel was not accepted by the Palestinians. That's not, that's not the way they characterize. Okay. I I take your point. So let's end um, the book. um, And none shall make them afraid. Eight stories of the modern state of Israel. Of course, the modern state of Israel is for better or worse, unavoidably bound up with the modern lack of a state of Palestine. The problem hasn't gone away still enormously controversial as we know as i mentioned the nabka day now has been uh, announced uh, as a 
um, a UN day. I'm not sure whether the UN also celebrate uh, Israeli independence. We've got to get beyond this, Rick. We, everyone's agreed on that. What does your book, in terms of trying to figure out how we get beyond this current catastrophe, uh, more of a catastrophe for the Palestinians than the Jews, but not great for the Jews either. Um, what does your book suggest that is perhaps uh, not the best thing to hear for a Netanyahu or a Jabotinsky, or perhaps even for yourself? Where do you and your team, your group, your Netanyahu's and Jabotinsky's, where do they... Where do they need to concede? Where is the compromise on their part? As it seems as if, you know, talking about two states, it's not even geographically conceivable since the whole thing's been carved up to make it increasingly unpractical. What, 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 where, I take your point on the Palestinians, but where do Jews like yourself need to compromise to do things that you're not really happy about doing? Well, I think... And for lessons from the book, and none shall make them afraid. What? What are you teaching us about history? Which is, I think, one of the nice things about the book is it's not just another book about Zionism. It, it goes to the past and looks at some of these interesting characters like Herzl and Jabotinsky and Weizmann and Golda Meir to make sense of our present. Yeah, it, it, it certainly, I would hope that people reading the book would come away with the sense that, the, that Zionism is not a movement of the left or the right, uh, but a movement of both. And that the key to peace... Uh, in the future um, is an acceptance of the historical narrative uh, and the historical truths of the situation. What I'm trying to do, and in the chapter on on Abba Iban, which we, unfortunately we don't have time to discuss. Yeah, but, and, uh, an interesting uh, uh, diplomat, perhaps about as centrist as you can get in the history of Israel, um, second ambassador to the United States, a South African-born diplomat. And, oh, even, on, and even his story is not fully known, certainly on any side, because it, 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 it seems like it was a long time ago. But in 1948, the year he became the year Israel was created, the year he became the U.N. representative of Israel, he said the future for both peoples is to realize that their national existence cannot be achieved at the expense of the other. They have to realize that each of them needs a part of the land in order to have... So, what is, I, so I take your point on Eban. Um, for you, Rick, what does that mean? Does that mean that the quote-unquote illegal settlements, Jewish settlements on the West Bank should be pulled down? And I mean, It's all very well talking about each side recognizing the legitimacy of the other, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. What needs to change? What does your group need to concede? Well, it, it, well I, I would, I would, I, I would throw the question back on you, respectfully. No, that's unacceptable. I, I'm, you're, you're on this show. I'm not. I'm just asking the questions. You need to respond <laughs> to that question. Okay. I mean, you laugh gently, but that is the question. Otherwise, all this is meaningless. It's just more propaganda on the part of uh, Netanyahu's government. Yeah, I well, uh, I would call your attention to five times when there have been compromises, and you 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 won't allow me to say where are the compromises by the Palestinians, but ultimately, yeah, you're not answering my question, right? I, I, congratulations on the book, and best of luck. <laughs>
Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.